Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're at today. If you have your Bible with you and you want to turn or tap your way there, Ephesians chapter 3, specifically verse 14, is where we're going to be looking. As Pastor Lorenzo just mentioned, this series that we've been in, Collective Again, has been our study in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We've set our attention on this letter, as Pastor Lorenzo just said, uh, as we uh, look for a guide in what it means to be the church, what it means to be collective again, specifically these questions sitting on us on the other side of 2020. And so today, as we reach Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, we arrive at the middle of the letter. And more than just the middle of the letter to the Ephesians, this serves as a hinge between these two halves of the letter. The first three chapters, what we've looked at, has been uh, Paul in many ways setting up the, what is the church, using this grandiose, over-the-top language. And then the back half of uh, Ephesians, where we'll begin you know, starting next week, is really his kind of how do we be that sort of a church, these questions of how do we walk in the way of love, as he says. And so you have these two parts, what is the church and how is the church. And right in the middle, you have Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, this little hinge that brings it all together. And as we've been going over the past three chapters for the past six weeks, if you're anything like me, looking over Paul's vision of the, this grandiose vision of the church has been I mean, just beautiful, kind of astounding to look at Paul's understanding of what the little church community is. This language of blessing and, and being graced, this language of um, um, us reigning with the resurrected Jesus, right? This incredible reconciliation work of tearing down the dividing walls of hostility. Last week with Pastor Isaac, that we are the heralds and enactors of this divine mystery that Jesus is unifying all people in himself. It's this captivating vision. But here's the thing. While this has been quite a beautiful portrait, it does feel quite daunting, if not exhausting, if not outright impossible as we spend time looking at it. I was in my discipleship group two weeks ago, and we were talking through specifically Paul's work at the back half of chapter two, the one in Christ, tearing down the dividing walls of hostility, this incredible portrait that Paul gives. And one of the guys in my discipleship group goes, Man, I just, I'm, I'm captivated. I think this is such a beautiful ideal, but it's just that. It, it seems that Paul's stuck on an ideal. That someone needs to kind of tell Paul to come back down to earth of like the real world of like what real churches are like. Not that. Maybe you don't identify as a Christian or maybe you used to and the reason why you currently identify that way or you're, you feel this process of you moving away from that direction is because you've experienced the tension of the ideal. What you see in the New Testament and in the Bible, the stories about what the people of God and the church are meant to be like, but as you get up close and you see them, you find quite a chasm of difference between the two. That maybe that ideal in the church that I experience in my neighborhood, maybe Paul just isn't operating in a normal world. Anybody feel that sometimes, operating in and around the church? Maybe that's just me. These past three chapters have left us with this tension between the ideal, the calling of the church, this vision for the community of Jesus' people, his family, and the church that we find ourselves a part of, or the churches we found ourselves a part of throughout our lives. This is especially true on the other side of 2020, that maybe this church ideal thing is just impossible. Collective again, in this economy, what are you thinking about, Paul? Paul? What are you looking at? After all of that, like with everything in 2020 in the rearview mirror now, you're going, after all of that, my, my 
uh, energy, my strength, my ability to even be myself. You wanted me to rebuild the church. I can't even rebuild myself. I, mean, I feel this even as, as your pastor, this kind of calling to collective again, this vision that we had on the other side of Easter and praying with us, the elders. Okay, yeah, this is exactly what God's calling us to. This is the moment. This is the season for us to step out and to regain what it means to be the church. And in many ways, I feel like I got two steps out the front door and just fell on my face. This captivating vision that Paul has seems to be this impossible ideal. Just me coming to terms with the fact that, you know, I, I haven't been in a vacuum for the past 18 months. And now we're all like, here we go, ready to get going. And, and I feel that kind of, you know, with me and Lorenzo and Isaac, okay, we're going to lead the church. And it's like, oh, we're just as exhausted and tired as everybody else. We're just as dis. All of this energy is tapped. It leaves me feeling like Luke Skywalker staring at an X-Wing submerged in the swamps of Dagobah, like you want the impossible. Thanks to Pastor Isaac, that's two Star Wars references in a row. And here's the thing, it's not that we don't think that the world needs Ephesians 1 through 3 churches. It's not that we don't think that the West Side needs this, or our neighbors need this, our coworker, our family members, that we need this, but goodness me, what? How? Here at the hinge of the letter of Ephesians, I think Paul genuinely anticipates that we would feel this way. I think Paul has been building up this case of setting before us an ideal, a vision for the church that is so captivating but exhausting that we have nothing else to do other than join him in a new posture, in a new power, and in a new perspective. Because Paul doesn't believe this is simply just him waxing eloquently about some kind of vision for the church. He's seen churches like this. He's planted and pastored churches like this. And now he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And us, 2,000 years, uh, believing that this comes to us through the Spirit, that there is an invitation for us as well, that not perfected but possible is this vision. And so right here at the middle of a letter, uh, if you're like me, you've been watching Ted Lasso on repeat over the past year. Anyone? Ted Lasso. Uh, the Apostle Paul here is kind of like Coach Paul, right? The past three chapters has been Paul in the locker room, giving the speech. They're going over the, the vision for here we're going to win. Everybody's getting amped up and excited. And, you know, some of the people in the team are like, oh, but this is the big, you know, whatever the high school is down the street. There's no way we're going to be able to beat them. And so Paul calls for the team all around him. They all kind of take a knee together before going out onto the field in the next three chapters of, you know, playing the game, you could say. And so Paul is a good coach. He's going to pull us here. He knows there's a big thing ahead of us. He knows that many of us are exhausted and tired, and this vision of the church feels impossible. And he says, that's okay. Let's take a knee. We got this. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, where as usual, you're going to hear me. That's what Paul's writing with. He's not writing to individual yous. He's talking to individual, plural yous. And like I've said before, yous guys just doesn't carry the best work. So to make my North Carolina wife a little more comfortable, we're going to say, y'all, Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. Look with me either on the screen or in your Bibles. Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant y'all to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in all y'all's hearts through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, 
And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work now within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray with Paul for a second. Father, we come to you as the Father the God of all things in heaven and on earth. And with Paul, we pray that you would strengthen us now through the work of your spirit, that Christ may make himself more at home and within our hearts and lives. And in doing so, that we may have a greater vision and perspective of how great and big your love is for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, here at the center of the letter, Paul gives us, in the Greek that he's originally writing it in, one giant big run-on sentence prayer. And if you remember back to the beginning of our series, this is not outside of the ordinary for Paul. He opened his letter with a giant, big, run-on prayer. And like that first prayer from six weeks ago, just looking at it you know, back on Monday, beginning to prepare for today, I just felt like, how do you teach a prayer? Because it seems that Paul's intent is not simply for the Ephesian church or for us to know that Paul's praying for us. Like, oh yeah, thanks, thanks Paul. That's so nice that he's praying for us. It seems as though what he's hoping is for his readers, which includes us, to join him in prayer. There's a sense in which we can't truly understand this passage until we pray it. And so that's actually just what we're going to do. In just a few moments, when we get to our response time, we're going to pray this prayer together with Paul. But in order to pray the passage best, I do want to take a little bit of time unpacking what Paul specifically is praying in and what he's praying through, what he's praying for. Specifically utilizing the language and kind of breaking up the text into Paul's new posture, new power, and new perspective. These three things are what for Paul makes that impossible ideal of Ephesians 1 through 3 possible. A new posture, a new power, and a new perspective. Let's start with that question of power. Look back at verse 14 at the beginning of the passage where Paul opens by saying what? For this reason. And what he does here is by saying for this reason, he's linking back to... Ephesians 1 through 3, the impossible ideal, the huge vision of the church is the new family of God, is this community that finds unity in the midst of their diversity, actually in their diversity, flourishing and being a portrait of God's wisdom to the world. That big picture, the thing that made all of us kind of stay up at night. Paul goes, my response to all that is to promptly get on my knees before God, to begin praying to the Father of all things in heaven and on earth. Paul, in light of the incredible ideal of the church, says the only logical response is for him to take a posture of prayer, for him to get down on bowed knees. Now, in looking over this past week, I began to see within myself that this is a new posture, at least for me in some ways, many of you as well, a new posture when we consider where many of us are in our lives. As we move into our collective again, looking at the, collect, the incredible ideal of being the church, there are three other postures we might find ourselves in. The first posture many of us might find ourselves in is not on our knees, but on our feet. Those of us here who lean a little bit more type A, those of us that are excited and engaged, we are caffeinated and coordinated. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a church to rebuild. There are people to serve. There is the west side to be reached. The kingdom of God is advancing, and we're going to make it happen. If I could speak for myself as a pastor and member of our staff, this has been my mode of operation for the past few weeks. 
I know some of you, I've heard stories of people who's like, they're on a mission to like, you know, collective again. We're going to rebuild this thing. Yes and amen. But the problem is that at some point, we hit a point where that energetic activity runs dry. And after a season, a few weeks, a few months, maybe even for some of you, a few years of being on our feet, we find ourselves in the second posture, that of being on our backs. Many of us, after the past year, this has left us knocked out. We feel laid flat. We are tired, depressed, exhausted. The sheer weight of work and relationships, of, for those of us that have little ones, kids, living through a pandemic, living through a political thing, whatever we want to call the past, you know, few years, that we're just flat on our backs. Many of us have tried running on our feet, tried going after the vision of not just the church, but even who I feel called as an individual to be. And at some point, we just hit a wall. After Easter, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I feel like I got two steps out the door in the collective again vision. We got this, we're gonna rebuild, and then... Just the weight of the past year caught up to me. I found myself like slipping, you know, the, the bad slip, you know, a feet higher than your head slip. And now laying on the ground, knocked flat and discouraged. Many of you feel in a similar place. After the past year, you've got the wind knocked out of you. And you feel unable to get back up. Many of us might stay here, but more than likely what most of us end with over time it's not us on our feet, on our backs, but on our butts. Lorenzo gave me the okay to say butts in church, so you could take it up with him. After a truly, for the most part, a spectator uh, sport, there are for many of us that we hear Ephesians 1 through 3, the vision of collective again. Sure, y'all go for it. I'm here for this. This sounds great, but you guys have all the fun in the world, but I'm, I'm kind of comfortable right here. This kind of disengagement that doesn't come from a simple laziness, but from an exhaustion. That in the midst of just, we, can't, we haven't stayed on our backs, but we found enough energy to kind of sit up, but not get up. Not enough energy and, and drive to be able to re-engage the work and the commitment, the building work of, again, the church community, but within that, even our own individual lives. In all likelihood, whatever posture you may find yourself in today, Paul's focus is largely on the church community, but uh, your, your relationship to the church community, you can largely, you know, probably make immediate connections to the rest of your life. Some of you are on your feet and you are running and you're go, going for it. That is awesome. We'll be here when you fall on your back. There are some of you that the wind has been knocked out of you and you feel flat on your back after the past year. And there are some of you that like, you've got enough energy to kind of re-engage, to kind of be here, but... That, that vision of whack when you were on your feet is just, you know, I think, I think I'd rather kind of, you know, instead of playing the game, sit on the couch at home. And that's no uh, drive against anybody watching from the live stream. So I, wherever you're at, wherever you're on your feet, your back, or your butt, please hear me. There is no shame in where you're at today. I want you to hear that from me, from the bottom of my heart. There's no shame in wherever you find yourself being. We just lived through 2020. We're going to be talking about, no one's going to be talking about 2014, you know, when we're like old. We're all going to be, maybe, I don't know if you, something happened to you in 2014. All of us are going to be talking about 2020, remembering the year that we went through. It was a groundbreaking, shaking year. There's no shame regardless of where you find yourself, but I would invite you to some curiosity. Just to name where in those three you might find yourself, and maybe I don't know, just 
Which one do you think? For those of you that are in our discipleship groups, this is something that I would really encourage you to talk through this week as you gather. Just kind of naming, where are you at? You're not allowed to, you can't be the holy person and say, oh, I'm on my knees with Paul. Like, which of those three do you probably lean towards, we'll say? What are you most tempted towards? And so regardless of where you find yourself this morning, there's no shame for that, but I think the invitation would be some curiosity to name that. And on the other side of that curiosity, to see that Paul does, regardless of where you're at, invite you and me to join him on his knees, this posture of prayer. And more than just prayer, there's something really profound about the fact that Paul says he doesn't just, I'm praying for you. He says, I get down on my knees. He's praying with his body. The importance of him being on his knees, Eugene Peterson pastor and author in his book, uh, Practice Resurrection on Ephesians, writes, talking about this act of bowing. He says, the act of bowing is an act of reverence. It's also an act of voluntary defenselessness. While on my knees, I can't run away. I can't assert myself. I place myself in a position of willed submission, vulnerable to the will of the person before whom I am bowing. It is an act of retreating action so that I can perceive what the action is without me in it, without me taking up space, without me speaking my peace. On my knees, I'm no longer in a position to flex my muscles to strut or cower, hiding in the shadows or to show off on stage. When I'm on my knees, I become less so that I can become aware of more. I assume a posture that lets me see what reality looks like without the distorting sense of either my timid avoidance, there's the you know, backs and butts, or my aggressive domination, me on my feet. I set my agenda aside for a time and I become still and present before God. This posture is not in vogue in a world in which the media, our parents, our employers, our teachers, and perhaps most demanding of all, our egos are telling us to make the most of ourselves. But on his knees before the Father, Paul prayed. Prayer and praying specifically on his knees. And so for those of us that are already running around on our feet, you know, the, the, the runners anonymous, Paul, Paul notice what's so, this, was, this caught me so off guard. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, I'm stealing from Lorenzo for a second, where he's going to go next week. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, Paul, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, look at the feet language there, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. At the beginning of chapter 5, he urges us to walk in the way of love. In chapter 6, he says, now stand in the Lord. All of that foot and standing language, right? There's like a posture to Ephesians. But what does he say at the hinge? Before we can walk, before we can stand, Paul says, we got to kneel. Some of us are running after trying to walk in the way of love, walking in a way worthy of our calling. And Paul says, you know, slow down there, Sparky. There's an integral movement that you're missing. But similarly, for those of us who have find ourselves in that disengaged place of either, you know, on our backs or in our chairs, uh, prayer is not for Paul another uh, aspect or mode of disengagement. You know, that's the thing we always see on social media is people are like, we don't want your, you know, thoughts and prayers anymore. We want you for Paul Prayer is not separated from action. It's not what we do while we stand at a distance. Prayer is what empowers us to actually get involved, to move forward into whatever it might be. So notice that Paul, although he doesn't just give a rallying cry, all right, guys, up on your feet, he also, moving forward, is not gonna say that everybody just stays there. For those of us that are comfortable in our place of disengagement, that prayer allows us to stay in that spot. Do you see that? The, the dimension of what Paul's doing here in the hinge of his letter. 
Because for Paul, the purpose of this new posture of prayer, being on our knees, is so that we can actually get back up on our feet. Actually with a power that we wouldn't have had if we would have just ran on our feet without it. It's integral. Because that new posture opens us up to a new power. Look with me in verse 16. He continues. From that new posture, Paul prays that the church might be strengthened with power through God's spirit. Experiencing that in their deepest levels, what he says, their inner being, as he puts it. For Paul, that posture of being on our knees is what unlocks that power. For Paul, the impossible task, the impossible ideal of being the church is only possible through the power of God. So for those of us on our feet, hey, slow down, Sparky. You you trying to build the church on your own strength, like that's gonna lead to, you're gonna have great branding and great gatherings. You're gonna do all this stuff, but you're, you're only gonna be building your own thing. And that'll last a little bit till you and the whole church fall on your backs. For those of us, he calls us, this is only possible through the power of God. But also note that the power of God that comes to build the church is, though not us, it doesn't happen apart from us. Paul wants this power to be a strengthening thing that happens in our inner being, something that flows out through us. So what this means is that the power means we can't run off without it, but it also means that we can't sit on the couch with it. It naturally rises up within us, and the way that God builds the church is through his people, but his people being empowered by the work of his Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going on and on about the empowering presence of the Spirit, and for most of you that have grown up in and around the church, this is I, the shrugging. I can see the eyes. Like, you just, you, you hear, you, if you've been around the church, you hear about this all the time. Oh, the Spirit, you know, God lives inside me, makes me strong so I can, like, obey Jesus. He's like, you know, my Popeye version of spinach or whatever. I, I just, this week, this hit me. I, set yourself in the shoes of the first century audience that Paul's writing to, okay? Most of these people that identify as Christians are now, mo- almost all, with the exception of, of uh, a Jewish minority within the community, is largely Gentile, meaning their whole experience has been like in the Artemis temple, like cult worship, right, magic stuff. So when they hear Paul go, you're going to be strengthened by God, what comes to their mind is like Harry Potter-like, you know, stuff, I'm like, this is, this is the, the world of cultic magic, of, you know, soothsayers and prophets, like these kind of like powerful visions of like, oh my gosh, Paul, like I'm, we're going to be, you know, you're a wizard, Harry, is like what Paul's saying here. There's this superpower that's going to be given to us so that we can empower at work within us. This is, they're on the edge of their seats. Y'all are like lean back because you hear about the spirit stuff all the time. They're on the edge of their seats. The power of God is going to be through, in us and through us. Like, am I going to get Mjolnir? Am I going to get like Thor's hammer? Like, am I going to, what, what's going to, telekinesis? Am I going to get, like, adamantium skeleton? And, like, am I, am I going to be Wolverine? What is the superpower at work within the church? Verse 17, Christ Jesus dwelling in your hearts through faith. The church's superpower is, is the resurrected and reigning Jesus dwelling in us. Make That word for dwelling is making himself more at home within us, in our personality, in our lives, in our hearts, in our decision-making, in our wills. Living in L.A., it's just like everybody, like I think most of the people in my neighborhood live there for about two weeks and then they move. Does anybody else feel that in L.A.? Like every week there's another moving car and like the guys are coming out and they're moving things in and moving things out. This language of, of spirit-empowered dwelling is Paul, if he were to live in L.A., he sees this like, you know, you're, you're moving into this, you know, your house right here. And up pulls up like the Holy Spirit moving company, right? 
And the Holy Spirit starts unloading all of Jesus' stuff, like his couch, there's his fridge, and all of his like family pictures. And he's moving it into your personality, your identity, your life. Jesus taking up residence and moving into you and then being expressed out of your personality and your gender and your, your socioeconomic, where you live and who you are, that for Paul is your superpower. Jesus dwelling in his people is the way that the church is the impossible ideal. Which Paul at verse 19 further explains by equating what does it mean to have Jesus dwelling in my heart through faith? He says, being rooted and grounded in love. For Paul, love is not in our, our Western kind of modern understandings, largely relegated to romance or just kind of tolerance, like love is kind of you do you and I'll do me and we'll agree not to kill each other. Or just kind of like general niceness of like, you know, I, I tip my barista, like, you know, woo, I'm, you know, I'm a loving person. Those of us that have worked in the service industry, you're not. Uh, for Paul, love is defined by the one that's dwelling within us, who he just talked about. Love is defined by him. If you turn over to uh, 5 verse 2, Paul says to the church, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So for Paul, the superpower that is our being rooted and grounded in love is Jesus defined and it is cross-shaped. That as Jesus gave himself up for us in his death on the cross, we now give ourselves to one another, serving and contributing and caring for, bearing one another's burdens. This, this reciprocal mutual relationship of in, mutual kind of indwelling and partnership, the collectivism, what we've been talking about. Where I identify with you so deeply that, that I care for you as a member of like my own body and, and you do the same to me. This love emanating within a community, Paul says, that's the superpower. That's the kind of thing that changes the world. That's the sort of thing that, that reaches the impossible ideal. That's how it becomes possible. Not because it's on us, but because it's the way that God's spirit works in and through us. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul unpacks this kind of love. We regularly hear this read at weddings. If this was read at your wedding or you know, someone that you know, this is not me. Yes, it's kind of about marital love. But, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is not talking about marriage. He's talking about the church community when he talks about love. This. As one translation puts 1 Corinthians 13, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep the score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel, but takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Love puts up with anything, Love trusts God always. Love assumes the best. Love never looks back but keeps going to the end. I spent a handful of walks this week. Like I would just have to get up from my computer and just like just think about this. I would encourage you to find some time this week just to think like genuinely get yourself in Paul's way of thinking right here. The power of the church to be that ideal vision that is impossible and exhausting to us comes through the spirit-empowered, Christ-defined, cross-shaped, self-giving love. That is the church's soup. That is, that is how we will be, it becomes possible. In a community that does not have that then, that calling and ideal is impossible. 
And so Paul's gonna detail that this is what the rest of his letter is now detailing and unpacking, what this spirit-empowered, Christ-defined, cross-shaped, self-giving love looks like. He's gonna get into this next week and in the coming weeks as we close out Ephesians. But what I want you to see here is like I just said, self-giving love is more than just like top tier your individual discipleship. It is God's power through the church to be the church. And to see that this power of love can only come through Christ, through the Spirit, through the Father. And so this is why Paul gets on his knees. This kind of love, Paul seems to think, you can't concoct and drive up within yourself. That it requires you becoming so wired and connected, indwelling in union with Christ, that that personality of Christ now grows out of you. And that when you have that happening within a community, that's when you have a really healthy, good church. And so our posture of prayer then moves to us receiving this power of love, but what does it lead to? It leads to a new perspective. Look with me in verse 18. Where Paul says that new power of self-giving love, that it empowers and moves us into a new perspective. Where he says that we may comprehend the inner posture that leads to a new power. Part of that new power is being able to have this perspective of seeing the enormous, unfathomable love of Christ. But notice just before this, that Paul's focus is not how we so often read this, is my individual understanding and, and grasping of the severity, the hugeness of God's love. Paul's focus is not on us as individuals comprehending the love of God, but as one translation puts it, that y'all may together with the church know. In verse 18, you may have strength to comprehend, that, and this is the, this is the capstone, that the translators are, are trying to make it quick and punchy, but they, they miss out, but it just says, with all the saints. Just notice that comprehending the uncomprehendable love of God is a team sport. And so that unfathomable love, yes, is true for you and me and all of the Bible studies and the Instagram posts that you've seen about this are true, but only as a microcosm of the larger, unfathomable deepness and riches of Christ that's experienced with us when we're a part of a community. To put it another way, there are dimensions of the love of God that are impossible to experience without regularly surrounding ourselves with other followers of Jesus. Again, there are dimensions, think about this, of the love of God that Paul, by making this a team sport, is saying is impossible to experience without regularly surrounding ourselves with other followers of Jesus in the context of Ephesians, specifically those who are not like us, and especially those with whom there was former hostility. Paul says that is how you begin to comprehend what is uncomprehendable. That as we surround ourselves more and more with God's people of being known by them, them knowing our stories and us knowing their stories and walking with one another, the more our perspective of God's love widens. That as we gather and place ourselves within the lives of different sorts of people are here, we see the height of his love and how much transformation and growth and 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 change there has been done within our lives in the depth and we see the dead depths of sin that all of us have been pulled from the more that I hear your story and I add it along my story and your story along with my story I begin to see a love that is so much bigger than just my little microcosm 
so much of spiritual authorship and writing and stuff, and it's so good because it's so necessary, is overly focused, I would argue, on us trying to look only with, we're trying to like concoct a big vision of God's love by just reading about God's love over and over again, but only through an individual basis. Paul is saying here, you want a bigger portrait of God's love? Place yourself regularly in community with others who aren't like you, don't think like you, and whose stories are different than yours. And that's how you'll begin to experience it. Come on. I mean, I, I remember, I have a friend, a uh, very different story than mine. Uh, he grew up in an awful family, um, just stories of, of what his, his life was like. He, he, for many years, was um, part of a violent gang, uh, ended up doing jail time, should have done more, but just this insane story that ultimately uh, became a pastor. Just when you talk through the story, just the just how different he and I are, with the exception of like our love for Marvel and like superheroes, like Star Wars stuff. Everything else on paper is like we are two people who should never be in the same room with one another. I mean, I, here I am. I'm like little, you know, Bible Belt Ryan. Like, hey, hey, diddly ho, neighbor. Like that's me. Like most of the time. Like, just sands the mustache. I'm Ned Flanders. And and. What's so profound is like him and I, we would get together and I always walked away. Our conversations would always just shift to how big and how good God is. We just geeking out about Bible stuff. And I would always drive home from hanging out with him. And I'm like, oh, the love of God is so much bigger than I had fathomed. Right? There are some of you that you've had a conversation like this before where you begin to get into someone's testimony is the fancy like word we use in the church. But their, their story of what brought them to faith and you go, oh, God is so much more powerful and loving and grand. Like, your perspective widens. You're beginning to comprehend that which was uncomprehensible. And I think that's why Paul says it goes beyond understanding, is there's no way that we're going to ever be able to meet and know every single Christian. Even for those of us that, like, you know, you're like, oh, great, my discipleship group is, like, all white dudes like me or something, you know, like, they all, like, here's the reality. Even in, in a more homogenous state, there are still different stories. There are still different people. There are still different stories of transformation, of, of challenges and trials, of, of sins and losses, of, of wins and, and steps of obedience and, 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 and testimonies and miracles of God working that, that the whole point is the more that we surround ourselves with others, the more we're connected to the church through our Sunday gathering, through discipleship groups, through our neighborhood dinners, and even just connected to one another, the greater our perception of God's love will be. And through it, because our perception is linked to our power, our power of love. Simultaneously, the more isolated we are from the church, from one another, the more limited our perception of God's love will be. And through it, our connection to that, that, that power. Do you see Paul's line of thought here? What, what he's building out here? Now, this dynamic has led me to wonder if this may be the critical problem beneath your and my felt inability and impossibility of rebuilding the church on the other side of 2020. You know, going back to the ministry update of us needing to step into serving, of, of um, giving, of all of these areas of like us contributing to our neighborhood dinners and our discipleship groups, of showing up prepared and ready to like, all of these things. We have been in this year of limited proximity and with it, limited perspective. No wonder that this has led to a limited power, which is our love of self-giving love for one another. You know, the saying says that distance makes the heart grow fonder. Here I am on the other side of 2020 wondering maybe it actually makes it a little bit weaker. Or maybe just like the halfway distance of kind of seeing you on Zoom of like, ha, ah, you know, 
Maybe if you were here with us last year when we did a teaching on analog church, maybe the New Testament church was onto something when it was talking about this embodied community of living alongside one another. Maybe God is onto something when he talks about this sort of community being the way that we do things. And so I believe the way forward for us, whether you are on your feet, on your back, or on your butt, Paul gives us a new way forward today. He invites us into a posture of prayer. Before we run off, for those of us exhausted, he says, it's okay, come on. Those of you, you're on your back. You got the wind knocked out of you. Paul, you know, he's picking you up, and he's not, you know, slapping you and get going. He's, okay, let's take a break, deep breathe, deep breath. We got this. In finding this new posture together that we might find that new power, that Christ-dwelling, Christ-defined, cross-shaped, self-giving love. And out of that, that we might begin to develop this new perspective of Christ's love, which then feeds itself right back in. This whole cycle continues to spin, and I believe Paul's inviting us to jump back into it. He set before us the impossible ideal, and now he says it's possible, but it's going to require a new posture, a new power, and a new perspective. All this leads to what Paul writes at the end of verse 19, the ultimate goal of his prayer. Him summarizing all of this is that the church might be filled with the fullness of God. And we end where we began. Paul once again sets before us the sheer impossibility of our goal. The sheer impossibility of of this vision that what we're going for. The fullness of God (laughs) filling us. This is too big. This is beyond our imaginations. Paul, the fullness of God filling us. Don't let the, the, this language like fall over what Paul is saying here. The fullness of God filling you and me and us together. This is ludicrous. This is silly. This is impossible. How could we be filled with the fullness of God? How do you attain that sort of a thing? I can't even get out of the bed most mornings. Paul's point. Yes, it is impossible by your power. Which then leads us to verse 20, where he returns, like I said, that cycle back to the posture of prayer. Now to him who is able to do, or I love the words, the powerful is in the Greek that he's writing. He's connecting that power idea there. Now to him who is powerful to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is not a blanket promise that God will give us even more than we ask or think, regardless of what our desires or thoughts may be. I'm sorry if you got it on a coffee cup and every morning, God gives me everything, you know, and then your life just keeps going on normally. This is not a blanket promise. In a context of what he's just written, what Paul's just said, what we can't ask or think is the fullness of God filling us. What we can't even imagine, the impossible ideal of the glory of God residing within a local church, that he says, now to him who is able to do far more than we could ask or think. Paul prays to the God who can take what is impossible in our strength and through his power, through us, not just make it possible, but exceed our wildest dreams and fantasies of what the church could be. This is so, so good. This will, like, if you're on your back, this will put you back up on your feet. If you're on your butt, you're like, this, this is the sort of thing that, oh, this is the sort of thing I want to be a part of. This is the sort of thing I want to give my life to is this community of self-giving love that then radiates this self-giving love out into our communities, portraying and imaging what it means to be the people of Jesus to the rest of our neighborhood. This is Paul's prayer. And so the only response is not to get up on our feet and run after it, 
as some of us may be, right? A type A anonymous might be prone to do. But to join Paul, to fall on our knees in this posture of prayer, to join Paul in asking God to pour out this power on us who apart from him not only could never achieve this in our own power, we can't even imagine it is what Paul thinks. The sort of church that God wants to build through you and me as we enter into a spirit-empowered, self-giving love is something that right now, if we got a dry erase board and we started writing out our dreams for the church, we couldn't even get close. And so promptly, the only response is for us to fall on our knees in prayer. And so what we're gonna do is we move into a time of response. For those of you that are a part of Collective, those of you that identify as a Christian, I'm gonna ask you to join me on our knees together. For those of you that are new, you can do that right now. We'll get all the shuffling out of the way. For those of you that are new to the Christian thing or new to Collective, no obligation. We're not gonna look over at you and be like, oh, you're not on your knees, this is weird. Or if you're like, I see Isaac's holding a baby. Isaac, you're less holy than us. And so what we're going to do is I have Ephesians 3, kind of my little Ryan translated for us version. Uh, behind me on the screen, we're going to pray through this. Pray this over our church, and then we'll use this to move us into a time of response. Sound good? Okay. Is it behind me? Awesome. All right. Pray with me here. For the sake of this incredible church calling, we bow our knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in self-giving love, may have strength to comprehend together what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. Now to you, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to your power at work within us, to you be glory in collective church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.